Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. The time is 7am. The weather is cold, but I don't know the exact temperature. <laughs> Very. Um, you are listening to myself, Ayan, and across from me we have Anya and... Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. As always, our pleasure. Yeah. It's good yeah. to have you back. <laughs> were you, were you? I was. I think I was sick and on and off and, and just lazy some days. So oh, anyway. okay. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Yeah. Uh, we have a very special guest this morning. We do. Well. Can we, we do. Can we jump straight into it? Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, do awesome. Uh, so just as a b- bit of a way of introduction, uh, while they might make fewer headlines, uh, horror stories from Australia's onshore detention centres are often comparable to those offshore in the past month, Melbourne's Mitre Detention Centre has seen a two-year-old girl uh, conducted uh, receive surgery for rotten teeth. Mm. A 15-month girl rushed to hospital with the flu. And one man who should have been released a month ago died by suicide. Journalist Rebecca Holt has been re- reporting across all of these stories and more. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, good morning, Chris. Kia ora, yeah. everyone. Kia ora. Um, uh, just to dive right into it, uh, can I ask what kind of conditions are children kept in in onshore detention and how is it that they've developed everything from rotten teeth to head injuries to mental illnesses, which I know have also been reported? So the issue with the four little children in MITRE at the moment uh, in broad uh, MITRE detention centre is in Broadmeadows. Uh, I would describe it as a bit of a perfect storm. Uh, three of those little girls, one was born there in March last year, the other two arrived at the age of nine months and two years old, or just over two, the two sisters from Biloela. Uh, they all arrived in March and they have been there 16 months. They arrived at a time when there was a hardening con- of the conditions of entry for visitors and then also visitors were banned from bringing in fresh food to detainees wow. during visit time. So you can only bring in, um, I'll be quite colloquial here and call it crap food, um, <laughs> which is sort of highly carb, um, quite sugary food, right. because it's all got to have an expiry date. It's got to be some mm-hmm. factory uh, packaging on it. Uh, it has to be sealed. It can't be... Uh, fresh in any way. Right. What was the justification for that, if, if you don't mind uh, asking? Oh, I put questions into the department at the time and got no, what I would consider justifications. Really, they were, uh, it was about health and safety regulations. There was talk that some uh, people, some asylum seekers and uh, 
other detainees up in northern centres had perhaps been infusing uh, fruit with alcohol. Right. Um, uh, which, you know, 10 marks of creativity, but um, they also there was no evidence of that supplied when, they were, when the department uh, uh, was questioned. So those little girls arrived, uh, and there's been a... So you've got one family, two little girls. They were locked in um, their unit for uh, the entire day except for half an hour. So the littlest girl, um, until there were some media stories around the middle of the year when I realised that they weren't even... the, The little children weren't allowed to see each other. Um, and when I started writing about that, they were allowed to um, socialise with each other. So that was so it was just abject isolation. Then, uh, so you've got the uh, deprivation of um, fresh food being brought in by visitors. You've got a carb-heavy uh, diet supplied by the detention centre. Uh, you've got a small child that's um, or two small children that have been taken from their home where they could have any number of fresh fruit and vegetables, and a child that's just starting to eat. So the reason that uh, Tarnika's um, teeth have gotten into such a bad situation is basically massive vitamin D deficiencies while her teeth were forming because she was just starting to eat solids. She was was still being breastfed. And uh, then... Uh, so that vitamin deficiency and then deficiencies within the actual nutrition that was available to her. Outrageous. And can I ask, I, I know Isabella uh, got the flu at 15, but she isn't, am I correct in understanding she wasn't immediately taken to the hospital? There have been a couple of issues with Isabella. She's, she was born in detention. Her dad is in the community. Um, so her mum was taken into the detention centre when she was pregnant, and she's been there since and had the baby. Um, so Isabella's now 16 months old uh, and spent her entire life in there. Um, Dad comes to see her and his wife after he finishes work every day. He has to book, go in, and they can see each other in the visit room. There's no um, privacy. Um, so she... For months, there have been ongoing issues around uh, uh, the administration not providing her mother with a thermometer to take her temperature, and she was having very high temperatures. And eventually, uh, her lawyer attempted to call an ambulance, but I understand very reliably that uh, the detention centre staff turned that ambulance away at least twice before it got in. Um, she hadn't been vaccinated for the flu this year, uh, and that was because when they did come around to vaccinate the children, she was already sick, and her mother was uh, new enough to say, no, you can't vaccinate a sick child. It, it just makes them, potentially, it makes them incredibly unwell. And then they, unfortunately, didn't come back and vaccinate her, and so she did contract the flu. Jeez. I mean, this is uh, a much broader question, but... Uh, we know some people are detained in Australia for years in these places. How do adults live in these centres? The thing that's said to me all the time, if I interview uh, people who have come from any either medium to low security correctional 
or prison type environment and then they have gotten into immigration detention, they always say to me, what do I have to do to get back to prison? Because detention's so bad. So the things that you have available to you in a prison system uh, in terms of healthcare and education are not available to you in a detention centre. And let's bear in mind that the majority of the population in a detention centre will at some stage eventually be found to be refugees. That's just an asylum seeker's legitimate asylum claims. Uh, it, but they're warehoused and it takes a very, very long time. There's uh, a couple of people I've interviewed who are coming up on 10 years inside the system. It, it sounds like instead of pro- like a process um, place, it, it's a lot of like, it sounds like a lot like a punishment. It's, it does come across as very punitive and I think, you know, with the littlest girl with the teeth issues, she also had a whiteboard fall on her head in the one covered indoor area, which is an activity room, which is designed for adults. Um, and so it had an unsecured large heavy object. Uh, and so you've got a small child that's bearing the brunt of an entire system that's meant, is really punitive and there's children there's very small children in there jesus and um the other end of this how can i ask who operates who operates the detention centers and are they at all transparent about what's going on there yeah the short answer uh abf so australian border force operate the centers but they contract the uh Admin and guard roles out to Serco, which is an international company. They do things like run bus services and train services and all sorts of security operations internationally. Uh, and they, um, so there'll be frequent, um, to me it, it seems, and I've been visiting uh, detention centres for nearly three years, there seemed to be uh, a lack of process and transparency between the two organisations. Right. Right. That's intentional. Yeah, or... I mean, that's something we could leave in the air, but that's interesting. Yeah. Just a facet of bureaucracy. I know home affairs is quite... What are the two organisations again, (coughs) Rebecca? So it's Serco and... Serco and Australian Border Force. Yeah, right. Okay. So... Have you been... Have you been allowed to look at any, you know, sort of contracts or... I... My time has been mostly dominated by what I describe as kind of human rights. Mm, Um, uh, But I am very interested in looking at going forward because uh, we're obviously now, uh, with the post-election, we're now Mm. in a time where there is uh, an appetite by those currently in government uh, in those ministerial portfolios to... uh, double down on Mm. these types of policies. Mm. So I think uh, there are some people, uh, I've just recently uh, learned that Comcare are investigating Mm. the care of this uh, child we've been talking about. Yeah, okay. Mm. Um, And on on that note, actually, can I ask, how how do you go about reporting these stories and and what kind of challenges do you face in finding them and reporting? You're asking the big questions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you're not encouraged to go in there, I'd say that. Uh, I, I sort of found my way in accidentally. I had a friend visiting and asked me if I wanted to go, and I was going back to New Zealand to do a, a lot of work, so I just went in for a visit. And 
and then kept going uh, because it struck me. There was a lot of attention uh, and reporting done on the offshore centres, uh, Nauru, Manus, and at that stage Christmas Island, but there was less so in the offshore, and it was literally something 20 minutes from my house, uh, so I could get a latte and drive up to a detention centre. So, yeah, look, it's getting harder to report. There is, you know, you you have to have an IMI account with Australian Border Force. It's an online application process to visit uh, a detention centre. You have to book, if you're just booking for one person, you have to book at least five day business days ahead. You have to have 100 points of ID. Some of uh, that is to be a colour picture. You have to have a very good grasp of uh, English and uh, computer fluency to operate this account. Uh, that's I've seen that be extremely punitive and prohibitive towards the families of people mm-hmm. who are in detention trying to get in and see them. Uh, often we had a situation mm-hmm. with a woman, uh, a Tamil woman who overdosed at the airport. Her family are in the community and they were trying to get in to see her and their family were blocked and she was then deported. Um, and they didn't, w- weren't able to see her. So you have extreme situations. Mm-hmm. 100% ID. I know when I've applied for, um, I, I, I guess, like ID type stuff, that's really hard to get. And I've got a citizenship, I've got a passport, so I can only imagine what those yeah. without, those who don't have it are going through if they want to be able to, yeah, make contact with family and friends. I've even seen people who have been asylum seekers who've been in detention centres they then get their bridging visa or, or whatever visa to exit. It's granted. They leave. But they want to come back and see their friends, and they don't have enough ID to get back into the centre. Um, but I mean, another big question, unfortunately. But um, how does the government justify putting people through all this? And, and how, I know another big one, but how do, we, how do we reform this space? How do we, you know, enact change? I, I don't think you booked me for the full hour. Mm. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, a few books there. How do, they, <laughs> how do they justify it? Well, I, it's something, I mean, I'm, I'm not from around these parts. Um, I struggle with understanding why... Uh, even talking about the little girls, to circle back to them and uh, all of them, all of their parents were uh, maritime arrivals. Now, successive governments seem to have ramped up an extremely punitive campaign towards boat arrivals, and so those are the people I meet often and most often in detention centres. They're maritime arrivals, and they're the ones suffering worst. Uh, because of the uh, decision, I think it was Kevin Rudd who said no one will arrive by boat. Yeah. Uh, and while that was um, it's, it was an answer to seeing people dying arriving in boats, it also what it's done is set up the people who had arrived previously to that for uh, the conditions that I've just described. Right. Well, I mean... It- it's it's a massive it's a massive area. Can I ask if we've got time? Um, just real quick, how how do you look after yourself while reporting on this? Badly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you know, it's. I mean, I'm a couple of years in now, and it it 
I talk to other people who report in this area because it's a little bit of, uh, you know, there's a survivor mentality. You have to sort of talk to people who have the context for what you're seeing. Uh, I'm, I can ruin a decent dinner party in under 30 seconds. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of people who are working in human rights environments or witnessing these kind of things uh, are good friends that report on Indigenous rights and you know, you you can become really unfun. <laughs> so uh, it's vital stuff, it's, obviously. Yeah, it's a juggle, and you just try and work out. Uh, you know, when you were asking before about the, you know, perhaps the more legal side, mm-hmm. the contract. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it would be good to back off and not tell as many of the stories around actual people, mm-hmm. uh, and perhaps do some more policy and uh, examine those things. It might be a, a way of looking after myself. Mm. But then, yeah. then you just keep meeting, I keep meeting people, mm. little children, who aren't being cared for appropriately and are in the care of mm. the government at enormous expense, which I don't think I mentioned, mm. but I wrote down just before I got here, 346000 per person <sighs> per year. Uh, now, I can tell you, I don't see that money. There was one day I was visiting uh, Isabella, who's the baby, and so there were two detainees in the visit room and there were nine guards. So I guess that's where the spend is. Yes. I told you I could ruin a dinner party. <laughs> yeah, well. Mm. No, but that I mean, story, with, honest, mm, with that story about that little girl and, and her rotten teeth, I mean... That was heartbreaking. Yeah. And while it's so important to talk about policies and contracts and transparency and all of those things, I mean, how do you get to the common man, you know? Well, I, yeah, and I guess that, so you just, you have, I think it's important to tell those stories because mm. I think they will cut through to uh, Australians who, I mean, I often come across a lot of confusion. People say, oh, are these people on Nauru or mm. are they offshore? And I go, no, they're in Broadmeadows. Mm. Get in your car. In your backyard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come on. Mm. You can have a look. Uh, and so, you know, I do personally find that kind of resistance to the issue difficult sometimes. Mm. Uh, I, I think I wear it. Chris, I think I wear a couple of editors out, um, yeah. you know, around the traps. <laughs> uh, they're you lucky know. to have you. Okay. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it is, it is literally right there mm. in our centre. So it's a centre in Perth is a centre. is Villawood in Sydney. Mm. There's Bita in Brisbane and there's Mitre in Melbourne. Mm. And there's, uh, the population at the moment is around 1,300 people in these centres at great expense. Jesus. Mm. With uh, what to me looks like no oversight, I've asked, the, um, I've asked Border Force a significant amount of times be under 20 over over 10 times to outline what the uh, childhood education or uh, what they're supplying to these children, what are they doing, and they won't answer those questions in any clear way. I've worked for a government department when I lived in New Zealand. Uh, these kind of things seem very simple and no-brainer to me. If you were keeping small children in a mm. situation where you're being accused of uh, breaching their human rights, I think that open hand gestures and um, transparency would be the first thing you'd be rushing to do, yeah. and they don't. Well, well, I mean, please keep up. The, you know, I guess at this point all we have is pu- public pressure. Please keep it up. Can I ask uh, where where can we find your work? 
Uh, I write mostly for Crikey, but I have written for The Age and uh, occasionally The Guardian. Uh, that's in Australia, various places in New Zealand. Yeah. Possibly just a Google of my name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you, Chris. Twitter. Thank you so Twitter. much for this genuine pleasure, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. So now we will play a song by Mwanji. Mwanji is an artist, but she's also the sister of Sampa, who we love on Tuesday at breakfast. But she's also an artist in her own right, and the song is called The Divine. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads, and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition, parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions and look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittlesecc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with myself Anya and Ayan. We just heard from the wonderful Rebecca Holt, um, who's a journalist who um, does a lot of work in The Guardian Um, and The Age and uh, those sorts of things. Um, She was talking to us about the horrors of onshore detention, um, which is something that people don't really hear about. They hear a lot about offshore detention, um, but onshore is something that... uh, often doesn't come into our consciousness. Um, and recently there was that article about that girl from Biloa, Taranika, who, whose teeth were rotting because of malnutrition in, uh, in Maita here in Melbourne. So I think that was a really good wake-up call for all of us. Um, next up, we're going to play a short excerpt from last week's episode of QR Code, which is a queer health podcast produced in 3CR. Um, the full episode um, is available online in uh, In Your Face, which is the longest-running LGBTQ um, show in Melbourne, maybe all of Australia. Um, so we're just going to play a short excerpt of an interview that was done with Dr. Asiel Adan Sanchez about access to healthcare for trans and gender diverse folks. 
Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. 3CR is a community radio licence holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music, programs for children and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in the operation of this station. Copies of the code are available from the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are.
to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with Ayan and myself, Anya. We're missing George, Zoya and Lauren Bull very much. That was Aboriginal Land by Nadina Dixon. Um, we just thought we'll play you a short excerpt from the 2017 Black Lives Matter movement that happened, um, that rally that happened in Kensington. And this audio excerpt was recorded by our very own Lauren Bull. Voices from the Black Lives Matter rally, held in Melbourne on December 17. Say it loud, say it clear. Racism, welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Racism, welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Racism, welcome here. Say it loud. Because some of you may not know, actually, this week to have this rally organised was a huge struggle, a major effort. We had to deal with police saying, change the name of the rally, saying, will you even be allowed to have it here? We had to deal with the local Labor MP, tell people in this area not to come, that there'd be trouble. It is, it's shameful, it's an absolute disgrace. We had also from the school, unfortunately, the local principal come out yesterday and tell young people at that school not to come as well. So anyone who's standing here right now is standing up to a lot of oppression, a lot of hatred. And we're standing in solidarity, solidarity with them. Um, to represent our community from what's happened on the 4th of December. Um, it's not, you know, I, like I'm sure everyone's aware what happened that night. It was really brutal. I don't think a lot of coverage has happened past 9 o'clock when the SWATS team came on to the estate and... Um, was really brutal towards the kids, especially the youth, you know. Um, so that's why I'm here. I'm here to support our community. And it is a rally for Black Lives Matters, but um, all lives matter. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. Well, yeah, the reason I came out, I mean, I politically identify as a socialist for one thing. So obviously I think there's a common interest in fighting against um, racism, like racist scapegoating of, you know... Um, vulnerable people, oppressed people in society. So I think it's like the duty of like, you know, collective, ordinary people, workers to come out and stand against that because I think like solidarity, that kind of those kind of values historically are how um, you know, you can fight against racism and actually one day end it. <laughs> uh, so I went to the um, community meeting that was held uh, just in the community centre over there um, the other day and I heard uh, the accounts of people who lived in the towers and what they experienced that night from both um, like the alt-right and the neo-Nazis and the police and how upset they were and how important it was to them to sort of have some sort of position uh, where they got together and sort of identified themselves to the public as you know being hurt and needing better support so I came down to support them on that. So. I think um, I'm here today to show support to the local residents, I'm not a local resident, uh, to show support to local residents especially in regards to what happened to them about a couple of weeks ago uh, to stand together to show that they're not isolated um, Often uh, these communities can feel very isolated and we are here to say that we're in solidarity with you. We know what you go through, we're against racism and we're in, in support of, of, of you. Events like this where the community can come together and be strong and be united um, will help us move forward to working with not only the police but you know, 
um, council and local um, organisations in the community and stuff like that. So hopefully it'll all go well. <laughs> Milo should have never been allowed to speak here. He was welcomed by the police. He was welcomed by our higher authority. He was es escorted into a place that was built by the people he wants to terminate. This place was, it's built by us and he wants to get rid of us and yet the police paved away and allowed him to intrude and walk in. The police paved away for a hate creature. He is an actual terrorist and while they did that they had the backs, they had their backs against the people of Flemington, the people of this community and they had their pepper spray sprays towards us. They did this to a community of people that they already have a strained relationship with. They have a decade history of racial profiling in this very community with these very people and yet they happily turned their backs towards us when we needed it the most. Victoria Police has been stopping black men driving here with a Caucasian girl in their car and asking the girl if she's okay because she's in the car with a black man. They've been asking young black kids off the street if they knew something about the robbery that happened a week ago. They have been getting groups of African kids and asking them stereotypical questions selling them the portrait that they've already painted of them and convincing them that despite being born here, these African kids, these Muslim kids, these different kids will always have to answer to the higher Caucasian authorities. They, they coax them to accept this feeling of being an outsider, ready to be questioned because someone that looks like them is blacklisted in their books. We have reports, we've done our research, we come from police accountability project, we come from legal centres, we've gone into this and we have proof that in this community defined by these parameters that the police continue to harass and racially profile on us based on the colour of our skin and what we bear on our heads. We respect freedom of speech, yes. But we do not stand for freedom of alienation. We do not stand for freedom of double standards. We will not allow colorism. We will not facilitate the freedom of police authority to make us feel like we are them an explanation for the stigma they associate to the color of our skin and the clothes we wear and the religion we follow. There is no freedom in Australia's black history repeating itself in 2017. There is no freedom in being interrogated by the government and the authorities' eyes. What about our freedom? We want freedom from historical oppression and stigma that is associated with our beings because we are Muslim, because we are black, and because we are different. We want that freedom. for our freedom and our equal representation. Okay? Our speech is equally as significant to deserve police protection, not police interrogation. Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right. Black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, unite, unite, unite to fight the right. Black, indigenous, Arab, Asian and white, 
Unite, unite, unite. Oh, that's such a catchy tune. And that was an audio recording by Lauren Bull, a Tuesday Breakfast presenter who is away at the moment but will be back, hopefully, um, at the end of the year. Um, now we have on the line Jeremy Poxon. Jeremy Poxon is from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and he is on the line to help us make sense of the mess, and I say mess, that is work for the door. Welcome to Tuesday at Breakfast, Jeremy. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's always, it's always nice to get up early and try and sort through you know, this absolute mess and disaster <laughs> of a program. I know, I know. I had to say that because I was like, look, 3CR, we are unapologetically for the people, so there's no... Um, point of me pretending to be objective about my opinions um well the, the, the good thing is you know basically all the all the stats all the reports uh everything that we hear from our members uh stuck uh on these sites all pretty much you know, uh, corroborate uh the idea that um you know this program um is a is a humiliating mess so it's fairly being ideological at this point it's completely completely fact-driven and rational, let's say. There you go. I have the support of Jeremy. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so work for the doll. What is it? Um, who falls under it and so on? Uh, so work for the doll is uh, one of our government's uh, compliant work ban measures. So uh, in the, in basically, essentially in the neoliberal era where, as we know, Social Security is no longer... Uh, an unconditional right. This sort of ideology, this sort of ideology takes hold where, uh, unemployed workers, social security recipients, people locked out of work, um, you know, aren't entitled just as citizens, uh, to receive welfare. Um, so it really comes out, um, in the, in the eighties and, and nineties, um, this, this program that basically, uh, forces, coerces, uh, unemployed Australians into doing what is essentially free labour, um, a lot of the time on, on outdoor, on outdoor sites, doing that kind of fake work, uh, grunt work, um, sort of, sort of stuff. So, um, I've done the program. I did it for about, uh, 50 hours a fortnight, uh, and got about 40 cents an hour, um, for my, for my trouble. Um, and there's been, you know, reports done over the years about how effective uh, this program is uh, at actually getting uh, unemployed workers mm. into work. And the last report I saw uh, showed that 2% of Australians actually landed a job after completing a work for the doll placement. So initially it was rolled out specifically targeting uh, younger unemployed workers. So originally it gets rolled out under Howard, um, you know, mainly targeting teenagers. But, you know, in sort of the 20 years since, uh, it's grown and grown, and now literally, uh, you know, uh, job seekers over 60 are being forced onto, onto work for the doll sites. And that's actually most of the complaints um, we receive from sites now are, you know, people like edging to pension age um, who are who are forced to basically work for nothing towards the end of their working life. Yeah, I saw that. In you're right. In the beginning, there was a certain age group, you know. E- um, predominantly affected those between 18 and 30, and now it's 18 and pension age, and it's yeah. also and it also covers several income payments like New Start, 
um, a new start allowance, youth allowance, parenting payments. So it covers a lot of people. Yeah, so, you know, so older, older Australians, so, you know, like young, young unemployed people have always been sort of, you know, hapless targets and, you know, the, you know, our country's always been like, you know, pretty happy to, you know, to force them uh, into activities to receive their, to receive their benefits. But what we've seen, especially over the last even five years, especially since Abbott took over, is just this sort of, um, huge, broad, um, coercion of, of all sorts of demographics into the program. Like we've never forced um, older Australians, Australians over 60, into, mm-hmm. into strenuous activities like this. Um, you and your listeners might have got word of the Parents Next program, which is another very recent work for the doll program that's literally forcing you know, single parents, so vastly majority single mothers, um, you know, who are doing what, like over 50 hours of, of caring work if they have a new infant uh, already to receive the parenting, single parenting payment. They're also being forced uh, into work for the doll-like uh, compliance measures to, you know, quote-unquote, mm. justify their receipt of what should be a natural entitlement. Can we have a look at the term mutual job obligations? Can we unpack what that means? Yeah, so this is, you know, this is sort of what I was, uh, talking about before. So this is the uh, the framework uh, the Department of uh, Human Services use, um, whereby um, you know it's, it's it's a list of basically a laundry list of, of requirements of things uh, someone claiming entitlement uh, needs to do to again uh, justify uh, being able to receive those extremely paltry entitlements and effectively. Uh, stay alive barely. Uh, this is this is again something that uh, come out you know completely in the neoliberal era, and you know sadly enough, Australia has been a real pioneer uh, and, and and have developed one of the most sort of brutal compliance regimes uh, in in the OECD. Like Britain basically copied us. Uh, Donald Trump said something very favourable uh, not so long ago about how uh, you know, effectively brutal. Um, our, our compliance regime is there's this classic quote from from Tony Abbott where um, you know as Australia started to seriously dismantle any kind of unconditional social safety net where you just got your entitlements without having to jump and beg and do all sorts of activities for them he, he sort of saw he, he made a, a big speech when he was employment minister that you know, it's, it's a moral obligation mm. uh, for every Australian receiving money from the state um, that they you know, must do X, Y, Z activities. So this, the mutual obligation carries a, a broad range of activities. Work for the doll is just, is just one of them. You know, we all, we've all heard about um, the job search requirement um, that one has to do if they're on New Start. Mm. Uh, and, 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 and I'd love to talk about that um, towards the end of the show how the job search effort would be impacted by the work for the doll. But right. So work for the doll, can I refuse to do work for the doll? You can. Uh, you're well within your rights still uh, under the Social Security deed uh, to refuse work for the doll. Uh, but I guess the next question then is, you know, there are currently 80,000 people on these sites. Why would anybody you know, choose to do it? The tricky thing is um, that, you know, we're often told 
by our job service providers. So these are the private companies uh, that the government has steadily outsourced billions of dollars to to monitor compliance and monitor activities like, like work for the doll and cut us off if we don't attend activities and stuff like that. Um, we're finding increasingly that uh, these organizations you know, will coerce and tell uh, vulnerable, unemployed people that they must attend a specific uh, work for the doll activity, even though uh, the legislation says, you know, the unemployed workers have a choice of activities. So you can choose, you can make work for the doll your main compliance activity, or you can organize your own voluntary work placement and make that activity, make that your activity, or you can even study and make that your, your activity. Probably, you know, obligations that are, that are a bit better uh, for people. But uh, these, these organizations, these corporations get huge bonuses and incentives um, from, from, from the government, from operating work for the doll site, mm. uh, from putting people on them. So we have uh, corporations like Max Employment, which is like a multi-billion dollar, um, you know, international organization, uh, basically netting millions and millions of dollars uh, a year from, from setting up work for the doll sites. It's kind of like anything that gets privatized, right? Mm. You, if you outsource or privatized uh, prisons, for example, I'm not even reluctant to compare work for the doll labor uh, to prison labor um, at times. If you're going to build these sites, you need uh, you know, participants uh, to, to fill them um, and, and convert them into, um, into cash for you. So this is where we see uh, a lot of job service providers telling people falsely um, that their only uh, that their only activity they can choose is is work for the doll, which is which is completely untrue. But sadly, as much as we try to get this information out there, um, I'm not sure if you or I'm sure your listeners have been in that situation. It's an incredibly intimidating feeling, and you're at a really vulnerable point in yeah, your life when you're, which... when you're sitting across from a job service provider and you just kind of want to do whatever they tell you to do because you're basically sitting there under the threat of being cut off the doll right. if you make them angry. And now they uh, have, like, the demerit point system, so you've got that. And it feels very much like the whole three strikes and you're out kind of thing. Yeah, so we've given, on top of all these activity requirements, we've given these privatized agencies unprecedented powers now. We've never had anything like this where they can, uh, as you say, give you a demerit point, which is, for those who don't know, uh, basically functions the same way as, uh, same way as sort of our, our traffic system, like if you run a red light and get like a demerit um, on your on, on your license. Mm. Um, it used to be the case that agencies would have to get clearance from Centrelink, the clearance from the government, uh, to be able to punish people. But now now they have full power to, to administer uh, these punishments. But yeah, like you know, you sort of mm. imagine being an unemployed worker sitting down uh, with your job service provider. You know, you desperately want to work. You want to. You want to, you know, do whatever you can to stay in the system. In the meantime, if you have somebody there basically telling you, which is what they do, that you must do this activity, mm. you know, you're living under the threat of getting one of these demerits. Probably can't, probably not in the, um, you know, frame of mind or position to take that risk and refuse to do um, what they're telling you to. But mm. um, this is, you know, and this is one of the, this is one of the sad things about, um, you know, these people. Um, not not knowing not knowing their rights and not having anyone 
in their corner, really. You're, you're, you're incredibly alone in the social security system. It's just like completely uh, labyrinthine mess if you even try and read through the legislation to, to even understand um, mm. what your rights are. So, you know, feeling incredibly alone, having no idea what your rights mm. are. So, of course, they're just going along with whatever they're told. Yeah. And, Jeremy, it's one thing to know your rights, but what if your job service provider refuses to provide you with other alternatives to WFD? Yeah, so there's, you know, sadly, this system is also one of the most unregulated uh, industries uh, that exists in Australia, but there are measures to stand up for your rights and, and make complaints. Like there's, you know, as, as unhelpful as sometimes it can be, the first step is you're feeling bullied or coerced um, by your job service provider is just to make a complaint um, through the through the special Centrelink um, complaints line whenever you, know, you actually get through. Mm. <laughs> Put aside a few hours before someone actually uh, picks up the phone. Um, but registering complaints is is, is really important. Um, we have, as the Unemployed Workers Union, we have monthly consultation meetings uh, with the department where we're just you know, basically dumping as many complaints um, on them as possible to try and get the to try and get their act together. And there is. And, there, and it is possible through that channel to ch- change job mm. agencies um, and hopefully get out of unfair activities. Um, if that fails, the next step I would sort of recommend it's, it's time to call in an advocate, right. um, basically. So that's what, and that's the service um, we provide for free. Um, if anyone wants to go to unemployedworkersunion.com, we're basically a union of people within the system um, advocating for and, and campaigning for. Uh, other people um, in the in, in the system. So we have a, a free national hotline that runs Monday to Friday, basically distributing uh, real advice and advocacy. I've worked on the hotline. Um, you know, I've had you know, cases quite recently where someone's being coerced into work for the doll. Mm. You know, they, they've given me a call while they're like sitting across from their job agent. Um, <laughs> I try to sort of talk them through it, and then you know, basically end up. They're just asking them to put the job agent on the phone mm. um, to me, and then you know I've been pretty good at uh, giving them, a, you know, giving them a stern, giving them a stern talking to, and that usually that usually works. If that fails, um, the next step uh, really is getting your uh, getting your local MP um, involved, um, contacting their office. This is something that um, you know this is something that they're meant to do. For you, and a lot of a lot of the times that we've overturned bad decisions, or even like overturned robo deaths, is because of you an MP's office who have a direct line mm. um, in the in the department. You know, they don't have to wait on hold. <laughs> the department sort of has to take those calls yeah. um, from MPs immediately, and that's sort of another way um, on top of that. So, mm. contacting an advocate. And then together with the advocate, you know, contacting that local MP is sort of the, the most effective way to, to, to fight on their mm. decisions. Right. And one thing I love about the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is that there is also, it's like, it's, it's very helpful and it's very, and I love that you take um, excerpts from the government side and kind of break it into details. So if anybody, like, wants to complain about their job agent, there's an actual tab called complain about your job agent and it lists all the things that you said like the steps so sending an email to your job agency first um, there's also a 
which I love. There's a fraud at employment.gov.au email if you think that your job service provider is defrauding the government, which is also a good way to keep tabs on them. Um, but the other, actually, the other thing where um, where we're, we're just about to, on top of all that, uh, you know, sort of launch a kind of a cheeky uh, new campaign uh, because we're through those channels that you just mentioned. We're getting heaps and heaps of complaints about uh, job agencies, and we're, we're slowly starting to figure out which are sort of the worst uh, in the country, or which are getting like the most uh, complaints. So we're, we're still in the process of it, but we're starting to start a little sort of like monthly award uh, to, to basically name and shame the job agency that we're getting the most complaints from. Um, you know, every every month we're gonna gonna do up a little trophy, try and do a little ceremony. Oh, we love that. We're thinking of calling it the golden demerit, but we're still sort of workshopping. <laughs> we are here but, for that. Uh, and is there a number that people can sort of dob in their agency? Yeah, so our, our national hotline is um, 1-800-AWU-4U, so that's 1-800-289-848, and that's all, on our, that's all on our website, and that's the best way to really, um, you know, get, like, you know, get, like, the advice you need to um, deal with your situation as, as best you can, but, you know, that's where we get, you know, most of our tip-off, mm. uh, whistleblowing, um, you know, stuff that we... Leak to the media and try and put pressure on this industry. Beautiful. And final question. So, work for the doll. It's not only a punitive scheme, but it's also dangerous. Can you tell us about the story of Josh Park Fing and any updates that you might have on that case? Yeah, I can. And, and it just, um, you know, we just received news uh, uh, recently uh, about his about his trial. So, Josh Park Fing uh, was an 18 year old boy. Uh, from from Toowoomba, um, who had to do uh, work for the doll there um, at a at an, in an outdoor site, a sort of a like in, in the in the Toowoomba showground, basically doing um, sort of outdoor labouring uh, odd jobs. He uh, went to work for the doll uh, one day, injured his back. Um, you know, sent a bunch of messages to his mom and his dad that night, saying that he you know, felt a bit sore. And we have transcripts of these messages, and they're, and they're heartbreaking um, that he didn't want to go, rah, rah, rah. Next mm. day, he goes back uh, to work for the doll site. Then injured in the day previously, he fell off um, a flatbed trailer and, 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 and died uh, instantly, basically just being ferried around in the, in the back of the youth um, as someone who wasn't giving a, given any clearance and permission uh, to drive a bunch of unemployed workers around. So this mm. you know, the site was completely unsupervised. There were no workplace health and safety uh, measures installed. We've since found out that 64% of work for the doll site don't have any of the standard workplace health and safety uh, measures uh, in place. Uh, we've been, so that's, so that's what, almost three and a half years ago, and the government still hasn't taken any responsibility um, for, his, for his death. They've done next to nothing uh, to rein in sites that don't comply with operational uh, health and safe. And, you know, most insulting of, of all, um, they've told us they conducted an internal report, internal government report, uh, into, into Josh's death, um, but have so far refused uh, to release that report to us and, and, more importantly, to Josh's grieving family who still don't um, have answers as to uh, why this 
um, happened to happen to their happen to their son. There was there was more data that came out in estimates uh, recently that basically showed that over a thousand unemployed workers were injured on, on work for the doll sites over the 2017-18 period. So this is, you know, re, you know, this was remarkable that you know, a program that does nothing, two you percent know, job has come, uh, humiliates, punishes, and is actually injuring uh, a bunch of people uh, out on these out on these sites. Not, and and on top of that, actually doing you know great damage uh, to other unemployed workers and, and low paid workers. Like there's currently like eighty thousand people um, on these work for the doll sites, right? Essentially doing free labor uh, for businesses. This has a huge sort of broader effect. Um, on our on our labour market, like if you have, you know, the government basically subsidising corporations uh, to use all this free labour, you know, there's very little chance yeah. um, for other low income workers, um, you know, to you know to to get jobs when it's just this constant pool of, of vulnerable, exploited, um, unemployed workers putting their life at risk on these sites. Yeah. It's 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 horrendous, but thank you so much for um, yeah keeping the spotlight on Josh's case and and yeah just keeping them honest, I suppose. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thanks for having me, guys. And that was Jeremy Poxon from the un- the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. As he said, there are contact numbers that you can um, reach if you'd like to talk about your particular case, and they are one eight hundred. Two eight nine eight four eight. That's one eight hundred two eight nine eight four eight. And I know that the that they also provide um, a free booklet, so it's in a PDF form. So if you'd like to grab a booklet that explains all your rights, so it's not just work for the doll. It's also Centrelink. It's also about how to escalate complaints, all that type of information. And you can find that on the Unemployed Workers Union, one word, dot com. Thank you to our guest, Rebecca Holt, journalist who talked about the horrors of onshore detention, and Jeremy Poxon from the Australian Unemployed Workers Union who um, spoke to us about the Work for the Dole program. You can contact the Australian Unemployed Workers Union on 1-800-289-848 if you need any information um, or help, or you can also call the Legal Aid um, phone line on one three hundred seven nine two three eight seven. Thank you so much once again for listening and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.